Welcome to Resi Law Unraveled, uh, a new podcast series focusing on the residential sector, taking in everything that landlords and tenants need to know, uh, reforms on the horizon and all the major issues and talking points. Each time I'm going to be joined by Elizabeth Duomo, barrister at Land Chambers and legal notes author extraordinaire and uh, a special guest expert. And joining us for this first episode is Neelam Sharma, in-house housing solicitor at Walsall Housing Group Limited. Welcome to you both. Thanks, Jess. Thank you. So to kick off this series, we're going to start right at the start uh, with a reminder of the fundamentals. So first question, a very important one for landlords. When does a landlord grant a lease uh, slash tenancy as opposed to a license? That's a good one, Jess. Um, Neelam, I don't know what you think, but when I think of what the hallmarks of a tenancy stroke lease are, I always think there has to be some kind of grant of the legal estate, either in land. There also has to be a contractual right to enter and either take exclusive possession of the land. And that usually means effectively that the tenant can exclude all others, including the landlord. I don't know, do you think that's usually a good definition? I would I would definitely say so. I think generally um, registered social landlords will ordinarily give tenancies as opposed to licenses and license are, licenses are simply reserved for temporary accommodation or hostels where there's even more vulnerability involved. I agree. And yeah. because you said that, I think it's also good to point out that under a tenancy, it's usually for a fixed or a periodic term, yes. which is usually granted for less than the the right of the landlord, um, obviously. Mm. And that's usually for a term certain. And there's always the reservation of the payment of rents. So those are the usual hallmarks. Um, and really, I find in this kind of scenario, whether a tenancy or a license has been granted, it doesn't really matter what the parties call it. The courts will always look at the reality. Yes, um, I think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And interpret the body of the agreement, the intention of the parties at the time of the creation of the agreement and how they've conducted themselves. Have they treated it as a tenancy or have they treated it as a license? Exactly. And looking at that, I think the grant of exclusive possession really is at the heart of it. There are some tenancies that are granted, perhaps of a room, but actually there is no exclusive possession even of that room because the landlord reserves the right to move the tenant around to different um, rooms within a building, for example. So that's really key consideration. And just as Needham said, absolutely right. I mean, it doesn't really matter what the parties call it. Um, The court looks to the agreement that overarchingly deals with the relationship between the parties. And I think it's Street and Mountford that really sets that out as case law. It's a leading case. It might just seem a simple question as well as to um, exclusive occupation. It's not. It can take many days to argue that out sometimes. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And I guess from a landlord's perspective, I I guess the danger is uh, creating an unintended uh, tenancy with, with, with what you've said about the court looking at the reality of the situation. Uh, you, I'm sure the the, the case uh, case law books are full of landlords who only intended to grant a very temporary uh, license and uh, ended up uh, with the court finding that a tenancy had been created. Absolutely. <laughs> a very painful lesson learned in some <laughs> yes. instances. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. 
<laughs> yes. Okay. With with that hopefully cleared up, can you talk us through uh, the different types of, of the most common uh, tenancies in the private and public rented sector? Well, there's obviously the secure tenancy. I think there's the assured tenancy. Under that one, you'd find also the assured shorthold tenancy. Mm-hmm. And although I wouldn't say it's common, they you still come across it from time to time. Definitely in the beginning of my career, I came across them more often. And that's the regulated tenancy under the Rent Act 1977, definitely. Yeah, those are the ones that I think crop up more. And definitely, I think you'll agree, Neelam, under the secure tenancies, even that category has been opened up a lot more um, by the <laughs> by government. So you don't just have exclusively the lifetime secure tenancy. You now have fixed term secure tenancies. But um, that's usually the umbrella in which it comes in. You First of all, you've got the fair rent out, as Liz just mentioned. Then you've got the secure gut tenancies. Um, predominantly used by local authorities, um, governed by the Housing Act 1985. Then you've got assured tenancies, which predominantly are used by registered providers, um, governed by the Housing Act in 1988. And you've got the assured shortfall tenancies, which, again, stepping back, less security, um, used by registered providers as a starter tenancy, just so that they can try out the relationship between tenants and themselves um, for a minimum security and then a more fixed term assured tenancy is given to them. While we're talking about tenancies, while we're talking about licenses, we also think about minors, those under 18 who can't hold a legal estate mm-hmm. uh, in land and vulnerable people who are deemed patients under the civil procedure rules who also perhaps need to be factored into it as well because then those tenancy agreements will need to be worded differently differently as well to encompass that you can't discriminate against anybody but you do have to make some positive reasonable adjustments as well okay so if we sort of hone in and concentrate on those types of tenancies that you've outlined uh, can you talk us through some of the main characteristics of, of those different types I think I'll kick off with the regulated tenancy under the rent and tax first, Jess. Um, they usually date back, um, granted before the 15th of January 1989, which is when the secure tenancies really came into effect. Um, I had it described to me as the gold standard in residential tenancies, <laughs> and that's because they provided regulated tenants really with incredible security of tenure. So you could have the protected period, which is the contractual period of the tenancy, expire, but or be terminated actually. But that does didn't necessarily grant the landlord with automatic possession. Um, the landlord would have to establish um, what you termed as cases under the Rent Act 1977 to recover possession, and they were a mixture of mandatory and discretionary grounds. Um, the Rent Act um, regulated tenancy was also just an incredible tenancy to hold because actually in terms of the rent you paid it wasn't the market rent it was a fair rent and so that was usually incredibly below what the market rate would be and also um, there was an automatic right to succession in terms of spouses or if there was no spouse family members um, if they'd been residing with the original tenant for a period of two years or more 
and those types of successions could happen twice over. So a landlord who had granted such a tenancy would really pretty much be granting a tenancy for life and then mm. some, <laughs> yeah. as it were. Yeah. <laughs> and you, uh, you know, it's been a reasonable amount of time since since 1989. Are, are there many of those types of tenancies that, that sort of cross your desk? So is that something that... that I'll be revealing that... my age, Jess. <laughs> 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 Not much these days. <laughs> um, okay, so uh, ne- next tenancy. Do you want us to get us a secure tenancy, Needham? What would you say? I quite like the analogy that uh, the Fair Ranked uh, Act were gold standard. Um, definitely <laughs> secure would then be the uh, silver standard. Um, <laughs> where, following on from the succession point Liz mentioned, you would have succession to partners and family members mm-hmm. and you would have additional rights within a secure tenancy for various things for assignment for succession um right to buy then you would for the tenancies that followed mm. but what's happened is when the assured tenancies came in after the 1988 act there were certain cross provisions weren't there there were you could cross-reference both the secure tenancy and the assured tenancy, certainly for, say, grounds for possession, um, where there were the different numbers, but they but they could be um, considered in, in respect of breach of tenancy and, say, rent act provisions, couldn't they, Liz? So you'd have, like, rent arrears would be grounds yeah. that would cross-fertilise between a secure tenancy and a assured tenancy. Also, I think with a secure tenancy, again, um, it's a dwelling house that has to be let and it's a separate mm. dwelling house that yes. has to be let same as with an assured tenancy and a short shorthold which is which is a species of an assured tenancy and that landlord and tenant condition so um in respect of a secure tenancy the landlord condition is satisfied if it's a um a tenancy that's granted by a prescribed body and as needham said usually local authorities yeah if it was pre um i think it was a Fifteenth of January, nineteen eighty-nine, when the um, the nineteen eighty um, the um, the Housing Act, nineteen eighty-five, came into force with these provisions, it was predominantly then housing associations could still grant um, secure tenancies up to that point, um, yeah. less so now. And so, yep, you would find in those circumstances that they could grant secure tenancies as well. Housing cooperatives as well um, would have fallen within that definition at the time. And then for the tenant condition, it's really that the tenant's an individual. So a company yes. can't be granted a secure tenancy. And the yeah. same for an assured and assured shorthold tenancy. And that um, the individual, if they're joint tenants, both the joint tenants occupy that property as their only or principal home. That's a really key factor. So if they sublet the whole of the property, no longer a secure tenancy, no longer an assured tenancy. And as in exclusive occupation, the concept in terms of principal home may sound very simple. They are not. They are (laughs) very, to prove it, it's very evidentially fact-based. Yeah. I've had um, (laughs) situations where a tenant has gone into a has fallen ill may have moved temporarily into a um like 
or people's home, but actually have always evidenced an intention to return back to their property if they Certainly. can. And the courts have said, well, in those circumstances, that does remain their um, principal home and they mm -hmm. are entitled to go back to it. So it is very fact specific, that issue. Needham's absolutely right. You've got long term so, prison sentences. Yes. Um, again, it's their it's their intention to return home. Um, long holidays abroad without notifying anybody, leaving relatives in occupation, saying they have every intention to return. And neighbours, I mean, it 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 is very time consuming when you are considering this concept um, as, as to where how you gather the evidence from neighbours and letters, electoral roll. I, I'm sure Liz has covered many a uh, day's trial dealing with that specific point of principal home. So it's simple. It, it, the term is simple, but to prove it, is, it's very, very difficult. And that's mm. a key concept in both secure and assured tenancies. Yeah. And without doubt, I mean, I've had instances where it's come down to how many shirts left in, in the yeah. cupboards. Yeah. <laughs> 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 no. um. And, and is, is there a magic number of shirts, Liz? Have you, have you, have you decided <laughs> no, on one over the years? Just leave the shirts. <laughs> yeah, as many, many shirts as you can pack in there. Yeah. Um, and if, so, uh, if, if assured tenancies are taking the, the bronze medal position, uh, as it were, yes. so can you talk us through uh, the sort of the precise differences between an assured tenancy and an assured shorthold tenancy? Well, Jess, that's a really good question because actually. <laughs> An assured shorthold tenancy is a species of an assured tenancy. Yeah. The main difference, I guess, really is um, how they were granted, because after, um, I think it was February is it 1998, don't, don't quote me on that date, but after <laughs> um, a period of time, you could no longer, or all assured tenancies automatically became assured shorthold yeah. tenancies. Mm. And um, unless the landlord or pre that date unless the landlord served notice to say that it wasn't going to become an yeah, assured yeah. tenancy it was an assured tenancy yeah. and um the characteristics are exactly the same so it has to be a a dwelling house that's been let um a separate dwelling house that um let to an individual let to an individual absolutely yeah. so it can't be let to a company again occupied as the tenant or the joint tenants only your principal home but um, in relation to an assured shorthold tenancy, you've got a lesser security of tenure, I guess, mm. because after the fixed term period or the periodic um, part of the tenancy is expired, a landlord can serve notice either using Section 21 procedure to get the tenant out or under Section 8 of the Housing Act 1988 on those grounds. So the security of tenure really is one of the principal differences. Uh, section 21 is, I'm sure, something we will ah. return to, return to uh, maybe a little later on in this discussion, and certainly in future episodes. Um, Hot topic. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Um, and we'll we'll talk a little bit about the, the the pros and cons in a bit more detail of these different types of tenancies. But but just at this point, so when it comes to drafting a residential lease, mm -hmm. uh, what key contractual provisions uh, should these different types of tenancy agreements contain? Well, certainly you need to be consistent in what you're going to call that tenancy agreement. Um, we have come across tenancy agreements drafted which confuse whether that agreement is an assured or an assured shorthold tenancies. So that the individuals who have drafted it have clearly used a precedent 
and yeah. um, failed to go through the agreement in its entirety um, and taken out references to whether they want it in the short, short hold or an assured. And that can cause many confusion. And you have to, as a landlord especially, you would have to give the tenant the benefit of the doubt and the increased security, even if um, even if that wasn't the intention at the time. But you would have to give them the benefit of the doubt. The courts would certainly do that. I agree with you there, Neelam. I think there has to be consistency in drafting, drafting provisions. I think just using boilerplate um, clauses yeah. without having regard to what type of tenancy you're granting, I think it's always a slippery slope. Um, but key contractual provisions, I think you'll find with secure tenancies, um, given the nature of the relationship and the longevity usually of those tenancies, it's good, I think, for parties to really set out um, first and foremost so security of tenure yes. what does it mean I mean you have to occupy that property as your own your principal home well that clause has to be clearly set out for the benefit of the tenant without doubt yes. um, I think also um, yeah having regard to succession as Neelan pointed out in terms of secure tenancies how many times or who can succeed usually needs to be clearly defined um, because you can actually um, grant more enhanced rights in terms of succession than you would ordinarily have to under the Housing Act 1985. So that should be set out. And if there is any confusion or any doubt as to what's been granted, as Needham said, usually benefit of the doubt is given to the tenant in those circumstances. So, yeah, those would be for the secure tenancies, yeah. I think, key clauses. And all classic example, like Lisa said, is succession. Registered providers will generally give more. So for an assured tenancy, it's, it's simply going to be the spouse, the cohabitee or the uh, the partner um, and no one else. Um, but registered providers will allow generally, depending on the terms of that tenancy agreement, family members, and then they'll define that family member to ensure. And then they'll also add in that they've got to be generally it's residing with the deceased 12 months preceding the death. And what will happen if there is two people, two family members? What will happen then if there is a dispute between them as to who succeeds? So all of that will need to be covered within a clause to reduce any disagreement later on. I also find um, usually, regardless actually whether it's a secure tenancy, an assured tenancy or an assured shorthold tenancy, you need to have a clause as to repair and obligations. That's always a sticking point, I find. Yes. Yeah. You've got the statutory protection given um, under the Landlord and Tenant Act 1985, so Section 11 protections. Yeah. Um, and then, but some landlords will give a more enhanced protection, some less. Some will just replicate the statutory provisions. Nothing wrong with that. But if you're going to grant more, be aware yes. that you've granted more. <laughs> um, I've often had uh, landlords say to me, but I, I didn't intend to grant more than yeah. the statutory minimum. And I think, well, your lease doesn't reflect that. So or your tenancy agreement doesn't reflect that. So that's definitely a clause that needs to be um, well looked at and well attended to in terms of drafting. Yeah. And that's come up in quite a few cases where <laughs> the landlords have given more and they've had to keep to that. Without doubt, also, I find, especially for assured tenancies, um, the mechanism for increasing rent. 
So there are there are situations, and it's twofold really, situations where the landlord hasn't appreciated definitely in terms of ensure tenancies that they're caught by um, section 13, yeah. which really fixes a specific mechanism for increasing rent within a year. And they haven't had regard to that. So they've increased the rent twice in a year, but that, yeah. yeah, which is unlawful. And so when it comes to perhaps trying to recover um, possession on rent arrears grounds, they've real they haven't realized that actually they've unlawfully increased the rent. So the grounds that rent has to be lawfully due isn't met. So yeah, that's a consideration. Look at the um, mechanisms for increasing rent that has been stipulated in tenancy agreement because if you allow for a um, contractual method that that's that's fine but if it if there is no mention whatsoever of a contractual mechanism for increasing rent you're stuck with the statutory provisions which are extremely complex I mean yes it's, yeah, they are, it's prescribed it's regulated and you really do have to read it no matter how many years of practice you've done you still need to read it again just to make sure you've complied because the consequences of not complying with it are too serious it can be very painful yes <laughs> and I think the other ones that I would just quickly flag up are and they're more less so for secure tenancies but definitely for a short short haul tenancies break clauses yeah make sure they're drafted properly make sure that they um can be triggered <laughs> some of the ones that i've seen that can't be triggered um make sure that if you're if you've got service charges that you reserve them as rent so that you can um if you want to use um, non-payment of service charges and recover that under rent arrears grounds you can because it's been reserved as rent um assignment make sure that there are provisions as to whether the um, tenancy can be assigned to third parties and i remember you mentioned pets newland which oh, seems yes. to be uh well it's a major talking point especially you know post pandemic when you know so many people yeah. um, discovered the joys of of animal ownership exactly again it might seem straightforward and mm-hmm. you know you can see that with the um the proposed bill that it's saying that everyone should have a right to have a pet and yes but also everybody also has the right to quiet enjoyment of their own home and if that pet if somebody's pet is causing a nuisance to wise pet then um, we have a recipe for a dispute um and not clearing up after their pets which is causing a nuisance in the communal parts registered providers being served with a statutory nuisance being caused because there's health and safety issues and vermin it 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 opens up with for sorry for the pun but it opens up a whole can of worms (laughs) (laughs) maybe we'll have to schedule a dedicated episode just for pets Liz Uh, add add that to your list Um, so obviously the 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 fundamental um, aspect of of all this is that we are talking about people's homes so uh, the main the primary concern that they're going to have is 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 going to be security of tenure yes so is i mean we we to return to the 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 gold silver bronze medal analogy it, that is that the, the overriding uh, aspect that determines um the the sort of the quality or the yes. the desirability of these tenancies or are there other advantages and disadvantages to those different types of tenancy we've discussed that can uh you know uh, shift the balance a little bit say in in certain scenarios for certain types of tenant 
the I think minimum security is an assured short-term tenancy. Mm-hmm. And given the policy previously that there was registered providers should not be granting lifetime tenancies, there has been a shift towards assured short-term tenancies, especially at the beginning when there's consideration and because they provide the minimum security. Mm. But without a doubt, from a tenant's point of view, you want that gold standard. Yes, you do. You could be grant, if you could be granted a longer security of tenure. So most um, local authority tenants, most registered providers who have assured tenancies, they don't want to give those up because there is that security. And they're usually at a rent that's lower than market rent. So yes. without doubt, for a tenant's point of view, they are the benefits. And funnily enough, um, for those secure tenants who can afford to um, buy their properties, the right to buy under the secure tenancies. I know mm. there's that proposal now by the um, government to open that up to registered social providers to allow their assured tenants to buy their own properties. That would be an advantage if a tenant was in a position to be able to do that without doubt. But then I guess the knock on effect is the limitation of the pool of housing stock available to social tenants. Yeah, without doubt. But I think also, I mean, let's not knock the bronze, <laughs> I think, <laughs> for a short, short haul tenants. There is also sometimes some benefit to having that flexibility to be able to say, I'm only locked in for six months or a year. And mm. if my circumstances change, I can leave. You know, I think some individuals actually do appreciate that level of flexibility as well from a tenant's perspective. And especially with in the public sector, social land, it's it's cliched. People say, but social landlords do not evict their tenants. They take their responsibility as a social Mm -hmm. landlord very seriously. They are housing those in social need. And, you know, there are procedures and there are policies in place to protect and sustain tenancies. So, no, we don't knock the bronze. It's a very good, strong security of tenure to hold in the public sector, though. I think in the private sector is where it becomes difficult. But the public sector, it Mm -hmm. remains a good security of tenure for them because there's there's support services in place to assist sustaining that tenancy. That's true. That is true. Okay, so we'll we'll end with a little bit of crystal ball gazing, maybe. We, we, we are recording this against the backdrop of uh, the Renters Reform Bill, as I mentioned earlier, which is the latest in a series of, of government announcements and proposals aimed at reforming the residential sector. Uh, now, the, the bill and the prospects of reform are, are something that we're sure to return to later in the series. But for the purposes of today, uh, are the grant of the, the types of tendencies that we've been discussing uh, sustainable, do you think, in the long term, in, in the light of the pressures uh, faced uh, in the provision of affordable housing in the UK? Well, that's a really good question, Jess. Um, they need to be, I would have said. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you've got secure tenancies, to give, if the aim of the government really is trying to give tenants more security, trying to give tenants more stability in their lives so they can plan their futures. You want to be able to make sure that you have um, yeah, 
a lifetime tenancy that a secure tenancy provides. Mm. But actually, we've seen that eroded. So there was the introduction yes. of the flexible tenancy. So it was a fixed term period. And then there was a question as to whether that tenancy then was renewed or a lifetime secure tenancy was granted after you had the introductionary te um, tenancy. So um, local authorities weren't obliged to grant a secure tenancy from the beginning. Um, but actually, you've seen a rowing away, rowing back. I don't know if you've found that, Neelam, of yeah. actually reducing security of tenure in that respect. So actually, the default is to grant secure lifetime tenancies still. Um, if especially a tenant can prove after a year of an introductory tenancy that actually they're, they're good tenants. Um, but I think an eye has to be had to what that means. You're reducing the housing stock, especially with the introduction of right to buy in the 80s. So it reduced the pool so much because there wasn't that continued um, investment in building of new social housing um, projects um, to house those in the most need. So you've always got that continual um, push and pull, really. If you're going to support greater security of tenure, then you've got to be able to provide the housing stock to house those in most need. I mean, the register for those seeking social housing is so long, the wait. Um, yes. So what do you do in those circumstances? And then look into the private sector. If you're, um, I don't know, if looking at the um, Rentist Reform Bill, looking at the white paper, I mean, it's great the things they talk about in terms of decent home standards and that provision, but removing the means by which a landlord can recover possession easily, that's going to scare, I think, many landlords into really thinking hard as to whether they want to remain in the market. And we need them to remain in the market because of the shortage of um, rental properties of social housing available. I, I really think that's something that the government needs to look at. And yes, they've made proposals to make um, eviction more easier when there's rent arrears but I think those of us um, who are at the coalface at the courts know that waiting times currently are pretty long for those types of possessions so it's trying to get the balance right I don't know if, what you think on those terms Neelam. Yeah I, I think there are Covid implications there is the, gov the court resources were stretched before mm -hmm. and there were waiting lists before but now it's even more so and again Covid implications rent arrears in some properties in some cases are huge yeah. and if if public landlords can't retain the money can't receive the income from the rent then how are they going to be able to sustain with right to buy provisions that they're they're discussing now and how are they going to sustain their stock yeah. and, and and if they can't sustain their stock how are they going to provide housing to those in need if, if financially people are tight, how are tenants reasonably expected to be able to purchase their own homes? The country is not particularly, in, in, in the world indeed, in, is not in particularly a good financial comfortable state at the moment, are they? It's a curious one, that extension of the right to buy to um, registered social providers. I think, yeah, limiting housing stock even further without yeah. clear plans on building, I think is problematic potentially. Mm. Plenty of issues for us to, to dig into um, as the series progresses. Um, uh, but to wrap up uh, for today, many thanks for joining us for this first episode, Neelam. Thank uh, you. And Liz, uh, next time, uh, I believe we'll be looking at regulatory compliance uh, from a yeah. landlord's perspective. Yeah.
there should be plenty of things to to discuss with that one looking forward to it jess <laughs> okay uh thank you very much again to both of you and uh to you at home you have been listening uh to resi law unraveled from eg